Hello and welcome to another episode of Fintech Focus TV with me, Toby Babb. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to bring to you Liam Huxley, who is the CEO of Cassini Systems. Liam, how are you? Very well. Good to be here, Toby. Great to have you on board. And listen, good to see someone back in the city as well. I was in there yesterday, just up the road from you. I know our offices are a stone's throw apart and it looks like uh, the weather's come out for you to uh, celebrate the uh, re-entry to the city again. How, how are things up there today? It's a beautiful day. We in our office here, we actually overlook uh, Tower Bridge, so it's uh, it's a gorgeous time to be in the city, and it kind of feels like an escape, really. First time out of uh, solitary confinement from home. Yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back soon. Looking forward to it, and glad yeah. to, to see to see you uh, glad to see you back in there and venturing back into town. Listen, Cassini is a company I've known about for for a while now. Uh, everything I'm I'm hearing and seeing has been uh, been a, a, about growth and, and expansion and, and good news stories coming out of it. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this. Congratulations to you and the team. You have been included on the Financial Technologists' uh, most uh, influential fintechs of 2021. Um, so more uh, of, uh, you know, of the bandwagon of good news rolling around the Cassini uh, streets at the moment. But before we get into all of that and talk a little bit about what's happened over last year and how you sort of uh, went through that and what's, you know, what's coming up in both your space and you know, in the company and, and the, the sector and buy-side technology over the course of next year. Let's find out a little bit more about uh, the origins of Cassini and, and, and your background in the company. Can I ask you to introduce yourself and, and the business, please? Yeah, absolutely. So my background was originally as a technologist. So I, I started off in CompSci and TechWorld, working in banks, um, prime brokers. So one of those great um, serendipitous things in life where you just sort of land in a in a job without any kind of plan or foresight and mm -hmm. that kind of sort of sets the path for, for for the rest of your career effectively i know that so, one. <laughs> yeah it, it's nice when it works out you know you sort of you navigate the twists and turns that, that come to you but yeah so i was, uh, started working prime brokers um worked in that role for i guess 10 or a dozen years in two two main two main um banks uh running tech teams in london and new york um building margin systems, building swap trading platforms, revenue systems, all the kind of different components and really having exposure to the financial market and the, and the very broad asset class, which you get through that world. Uh, and then I left in, in 2005, I co-founded a, a previous business to Cassini that was focused on the PB and the hedge fund world. And that was course in covert. And we sold basically initially marketing platforms into prime brokers. And then ironically, uh, another sort of major financial event, uh, the crash uh, back in 2007-8 caused, you know, a change of recognition in the market and an appetite for hedge funds for tools and for margin replication. So we then also sold into that world and sold that business into um, Advent Software as it was, which is now part of SSNC mm -hmm. back in 2011. So that was sort of the, the sort of the grounding in 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 financial markets and in in this kind of part of the industry, um, I spent a couple of years with Advent after the acquisition, transitioning that business in in New York, and then left and was looking at different ideas for a, a new product set, essentially in um, in the market. And the, the genesis of Cassini sort of came from from that um, uh, exploration and validation of what was needed in the world at that time. So, in two thousand and fourteen really looking at what was going to be coming down this, 
um, the road uh, and that would affect the broader derivatives market and the broader buy side market. Mm. And what, what I could see was uh, that there was sort of different sways, um, waves of regulation coming down. You had clearing mandates, Dodd-Frank and EMEA and um, all the global regulations around that. And then um, MIFID II, which is a sort of correlated or you know, incidental set of regulations, but changed the definitions of what um, true trading cost was, you know, what, what the all-in cost of a trade. And then you had unclear margin rules, the UMR, uh, also in train. And you, know, you can see that coming down the track. And looking at that um, confluence of regulation really sort of gelled the, the realization that the traditional buy side market rather than say the hedge fund world, which was going to have a change in its outlook and a change in cost and of trading derivatives and also impact on collateral and liquidity. So that that was sort of the, the genesis of then mm. figuring out how to solve that problem and how to create a, a platform that would would be applicable across that broad market. And, and looking at that as a specific problem, I guess was was a deliberate aspect of you having you know, had the, had the advantage to exit, having looked at the marketplace and said, right, I want, I want to go again. What, what, tell, tell me about some of the, the sort of decision-making that allowed you to say, this is the right problem for us to be solving at the moment, because it certainly seems to have proven that, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think the key thing, certainly from my perspective anyway, is I've never been that keen on, you know, just reinventing a mousetrap. I've never been that keen on sort of doing something that's already done. Um, and in my prior career in banks, um, you know, pretty much all the sort of systems and solutions I built were were new, you know, new concepts. So it sort of hadn't really been done in other in that form in other banks at the time. You know, that was an evolving industry as well. Yeah. So and Syncova was was a similar thing. Syncova was when we started Syncova, um, all the people we spoke to in the PV industry said this can't be done. You can't build a platform which can be generically used to construct the very bespoke and very complex prime broker margining models. Every PB has a bespoke, um, very uh, organically evolved model, and they're all completely different. Um, so we said, yeah, we, we can do that. We know the technologists, we know how to solve that problem. So the same thing with Cassini. You know, what, what I could see was that there was going to be an additional sort of impact of all these regulations that didn't, wasn't addressed by any of the existing kind of technology solutions. And because it was really multi-silo, multifunctional, it was, you know, it's a problem that needs to be understood in the front office, but is really derived from back office data and data that is often in an outsource uh, mm -hmm. operation, not even in the firm. So you could see that there was a, a need for a new sort of thinking and a new solution set there. And that, that was really the sort of the key to it, because that means firstly, there's a business opportunity because it's a new, new concept. No one's in that space yet. And also because it goes across silos, it's something that's not going to be obviously an easily kind of competed with, you know, it's, it's none of the standard platforms are going to be easily able to pivot and adapt into that area because it goes outside of their sort of their functional boundaries. Mm. So those two seem to be keys to, to make it a viable idea to explore. And certainly through 2014 and 15, you know, I did a long series of validation meetings, various participants around the market um, on all parts, you know, buy side, sell side, dealers, um, software funds really evolving and exploring how that um, model would shape up. And, and the, the feedback was almost unanimous in that it's the right idea. It's early, 2014, 15 was too early for the market to really want to uh, start adopting it, but that was fine because we needed time mm -hmm. to build it. Um, 
and that people could, looking down the road could see that this would have the right fit and right applicability. And I think that's how it's kind of panned out. You know, there's a lot of market evolution that's happened in the meantime in terms of people understanding the impact of regulations and collateral issues on their um, on their trading and on their operations and thinking differently about how to solve that. Um, and so we've sort of come into that space at the right time with the right uh, solution set. I love that. And, and this is a sort of feature of the companies, you know, the vast majority of the companies we're featuring in this uh, uh, issue of the financial technologist is businesses there that are looking at, at not only sort of problems that have got genuine impact into, into marketplace, but future gazing a little bit as well. And I think that's really, you know, it's bold, as you say, that you mentioned there that it was it was too early for the market, but it you know it was an advantage for you to be too early that allowed you to put you know, position yourself for that. That takes some you know, that takes some courage in terms of uh, setting that up and and being positive in your crystal ball about what the market reacts to and where those problems are. So sort of playing two moves ahead of of the industry, I think is fantastic and and gives you that sort of first mover advantage to really uh, you know solve those problems. And, and I know we've spoken about this in the past about. The importance of first mover advantage and doing things well at the right and, and you know competitors and other people come there and uh you know copy that if you do it if you're doing the right sort of things at various different stages but when you're there and you have that sort of an initial foresight to be able to do that it creates that those those sort of great opportunities to scale and i'm really interested in this because your business as i said has, has always been synonymous to me with fast growth and and uh you know it's, it's been a, a continuous trajectory as far as i can see from the outside of of doing the right things the right way, attracting good investment, uh, having a good plan, good team, good growth, both in, in the UK and the US. You mentioned there earlier on um, in your first business, 2008, and how that uh, you know, how that became an advantage for you as well with that to, to sort of move into different areas and expand the sort of product portfolio and customer base a little bit with the hedge funds. The, the businesses that I've been speaking to um, over the last year who've done really well are also the people who've looked at what we've seen over the last year and said right how can we use this to our advantage rather than sort of draw up the shutters and survive how can we attack the marketplace and add more value to our customers and, and uh, deliver more issues now we haven't spoken about this so far but i imagine 2020 will have been very similar to you in, you know, in 2008 as to how you can deal with it talk to us about how cassini has not just weathered the storm but come fly, flying through it and they're continuing to, to grow and, and evolve and, and add value and, and provide more solutions to the customers because of what we've been seeing yeah absolutely so i think to, to that very point there is a great analogy or sort of cor correlation for us between 2008 and and last year obviously the events were very different the causes were different but yeah. the the side effect of both of them was to to highlight a gap and highlight a need in yeah. in the kind of control process and in the risk process of the firms that are in our target market. So first time around, it was specifically the hedge fund universe. Um, hedge funds with exposure to Lehman um, had you know, large amounts of kind of collateral and assets tied up and didn't understand what was happening with their counterparties margining, et cetera, et cetera. And last year, it was, it was more, um, you know, obviously COVID had you know, operational and personal impacts on every firm. You know, we, like everybody else, uh, switched immediately, you know, mid-March or end of March, whenever that, that we actually flipped over from... Almost, almost a year to, to this week, isn't it? Pretty much a year, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And we're still, we're still not you know, in the office. So, you know, we switched yeah. exactly to remote working. As a software company that's based on a modern kind of uh, software development platform and tech stack, that was actually pretty straightforward. Everything's in the cloud anyway. So that really yeah. wasn't a problem. But the, 
the bit that's interesting from the kind of business and finance perspective is that the the side effect of covid was the volatility in the market so suddenly the world's economy is thrown into turmoil no one quite knows how this is going to pan out what the risk is so that as we all remember right the markets went kind of crazy um volatility. I think people forget that though don't they as well i mean people <laughs> do forget about how how sharply it declined i mean the 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 was, headlines were extraordinary at that time, was, right? Exactly. It was calamitous. And of course, the, the, the nervousness and the risk, no one really knew what the, what the impact of this pandemic was going to be and therefore what the kind of recovery path would look like or how major you know, an impact it would have in the long term. So, yeah, the markets declined hugely. Volatility went through the roof. And that mm. really was the key because for the firms who we're, we're focused on and we support, then trading any kind of collateralized product when volatility goes through the roof suddenly everything changes you know your, your margin calls double or, or more overnight both on initial and obviously the variation in the market to market so we saw that we saw our our clients and firms who were sort of talking to who weren't clients yet suddenly having these huge stresses on their kind of ability to keep their trading and support their trading because mm-hmm. suddenly having to find huge amounts of cash or other collateral to, to post out um, we saw firms unwinding hundreds of millions of euros of positions, you know, to free capital up. Um, we had other clients who literally sort of calling us up going, right, we need to halve our margin now. Quick, you know, tell us how to run the tools to, to you know, run that, you know, save that margin overnight. And and we were able to, to do that. So what it, the net effect it had was to shine a big light on the message that we've had from the start, which is that, the kind of post-trade costs of, of trading, margin, collateral, funding, um, are now really material to performance of a, a portfolio and to the operational stability of a firm, and therefore should be part of your trade and your risk control process from start to finish. Mm. Because the fact that firms were actually having to change or get out of trading positions due to you know collateral volatility and collateral is kind of it was a shock to a lot of firms. It wasn't really the way they think about it. And so, mm. so that, that instability really sort of highlighted the use case that we've always sort of spoken about and therefore, you know, brought more attention to, to what we do and to the challenges. And of course, yeah, helps firms when they're starting to look at strategic solutions, be able to understand the need to solve these problems, but also to sell those solutions internally. Yeah. You know, um, whenever a firm is making a business process change, um, and bringing in a new kind of set of tools, they have to obviously get buy-in from management stakeholders. So that also managed or helped firms sort of get that buy-in internally. Apart, I mean, so apart from that on the business side, obviously COVID-wise, the other um, impact that we've seen, and I'm sure most firms have seen is when everybody, when you have to rebalance your firm and suddenly everyone's working remotely, um, you've got you've got the kind of corporate stress and you've got personal stress. People are working from home, they have kids and the challenges of homeschooling, or they're younger people in shared houses and having to work from their bedroom. I mean, nothing was it's easy. Myriad. Yeah, it's a myriad yeah, of different exactly. problems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's every, every person has a different sort of set of challenges. And what was amazing for Cassini was we, we doubled last year. We doubled um, in staff, we doubled in uh, revenue and climate, even through those stresses. Now, obviously without COVID, probably could have done more but you know it's still a very strong year and and basically the reason we managed to do that was the people you know the people yeah. we managed to hire um and I'm I'm incredibly proud of Cassini it's the best team I've, I've worked with and built 
in my career. Um, and it's, it's about, I have this thing about three T's, team transparency and trust. So the fact that people, you know, we hire really smart people who are very collaborative. There's no egos. I have a no asshole hiring rule. So there's no sort of um, com competitiveness. Everybody works together and everybody trusts each other. And there's a, a huge amount of transparency and openness in the firm between teams yeah. and top down. Um, and I think that was really important to people continuing to be able to work effectively. And, and we look after each other and we support each other um, through each individual challenge um, and pull the, pull the company through into a very strong position at year end. I'm almost fascinated with that because it's because because you know obviously you know my 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 business is all about people and and uh, and teams and growing teams and I see companies do it brilliantly and I see companies do it struggle a little bit more. I think the interesting thing is is having done 21 years in recruitment now, if you've gone back to it, uh, gone back and asked me a year ago as to whether you were going to see hiring volumes at a reasonable level after a companies have been out of an office, all your clients would not have been together in an office over the course of a year would you how would you predict that would go for you <laughs> I'd, I'd have probably been tearing my hair out and and uh and, and seriously concerned about what we can do but companies such as you, you, the, the amazing thing for me is is how far from unique the sort of numbers that you've just talked about have been across the industry but it hasn't been omnipresent you're not talking you're talking about a, a number of different companies who've been able to sort of really get this right to be able to double in headcount to be able to double in size and to take that bold sort of a you know, approach to the industry because they are doing things right for their customer and they're doing things right for their people within it. So when you're looking at a team there that is, has grown significantly already anyway, and as you say, over the course of this 12-month period with everyone remote has doubled, doubled in size, that creates a tremendous amount of pressure to, to make sure that, that and you know, actual skills to, to make sure that that no arsehole rule actually does, you know, does live on because... When you're there and you're you're able to meet people face to face and see how they interact with people and do all those sort of things, a lot of that sort of behaviour becomes very present very quickly, and you can act on it yeah. accordingly. When it's there and it's as, as spread out as it as it's been, to me that represents a different sort of set of challenges. And so, so when I've spoken to companies um, who who I think have really thrived, you know, some of the best companies who I think have really adapted to this this sort of phase, trust, transparency, and teamwork, as you said, those three T's are usually very, very firmly towards the top of the agenda for how they've done that, with a particular focus, I think, on that transparency, which builds the trust. Yeah. So it's leadership who are very transparent with their people. They trust their people to be able to get on with their jobs and, and deal with them accordingly. So there's very, very little micromanagement in terms of what they're talking about, which is then said, right, how do we then connect and build this team? There's, there's as many, you know, many things as, you know, we've all had the, uh, the Zoom parties and all this sort of stuff, which were, were very on trend at the start of the, uh, the the pandemic and have grown ever more weary uh, throughout all of it. But talk to me about talk to me about those three T's in a little bit more difficult in, in a bit more depth because I think it's I think it's phenomenal. And I think when you're in it, you probably won't. You, know, you mentioned there glowingly the team that you're working with at the moment, but to to build that team remotely, I think is extraordinary. And I think when you when you're out of this in a year's time, you look back on this and realize just how extraordinary the job that you've done over this period really is, because it's a unique set of challenges and a skill set there which which no one's prepared for. And I know you you, know, you can cite 2008, but again, as you said, very very different set of challenges, uh, and and in some ways you know easier because everyone was you know was together. I know it had a much more devastating impact on the sector. Exactly. It has, yeah. it has this time out, but it's a different set of challenges again. Liam, I, I, you know, I, th I think it's phenomenal um, I, how, you, how you've I, done I, that, but I'd love to get just a couple of things that you, you can say really worked for you over that period. Yeah, really I was going to say the one yeah. one thing I would add to to what you were describing, which 
as I say, you know, a lot, we're not unique by any means. A lot of firms have, have managed by focusing on their, their teams and their people more to be successful. Mm. But the, the key as well as the internal team dynamic, you know, that, that trust and transparency piece. The other key is listening. And um, mm. when you're in this kind of environment, as you say, when you're, when you're working in an office space together and you're going having a beer after work, you know, a couple of nights a week, five nights a week, however often you do that. Um, <laughs> I've heard about your roof terrace outside, <laughs> yeah. so I know a little bit more about we, yours. We have an amazing roof terrace, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you, as you say, you can, firstly, you can kind of pick up on those things where maybe frustration and tensions crept in, but also it mitigates it. You know, people can just smooth the edges off with a, with a drink together after work. When people are remote, you know, you're on team calls all day long and pretty much almost every time you're on a call and you're speaking to people, it's, it's kind of, it's a functional or transactional, you know, you, mm. you're there for a purpose. So these tensions or frustrations or little bits of friction can creep in, even in a, in a, in a really great cooperative team. And you have to listen out and be very tuned into the sort of the cues that show it's starting to happen, right? And, you know, try and catch it before things flare up or people get too frustrated or because when you're sitting at home in your own little world it's very easy for things to sort of seem a lot more significant than they than they really are so that's been really key as well so listening and then tuning in talking to people individually um you know there's no hierarchy you know we all there's a sort of management team in casino about five people run different teams but we all talk all the time and we talk to to everyone else all the time so it's about just making sure that there's that sort of open flow and being sensitive to the signals other not obvious signals maybe that come from people to keep yeah. to keep that moving um and, are very and, and interesting to work key out, to, the key to the whole thing at the start which is you know obviously your world is hiring yeah we grew a lot last year as we said in terms of staff um but it's a very time consuming process because we are very very selective um because to operate in a in a team of 40 or 50 people you know you need those people who really have all of those attributes um yeah and are able to work in that kind of format and have the smarts and have the communication skills and have the social skills um so yeah we just have we're very very picky about who we who we hire in the first place and so with that hiring and looking at, at, uh, at things from last year let's say where interview process were probably a little bit more you know, straightforward you're there and you, you, you're looking into people's eyes which is always the big part of, uh, a, of a hiring process etc you know I think I think there's probably three hires that we that we've made for our, our clients this year where where it's been face-to-face the rest of it's all been online and I've seen companies really struggle to get that right and I've seen companies who've really thought about their process and it seems to me that when, when you're talking about people that you didn't necessarily talk about just even in that last sentence you didn't talk about the skills you spoke about the smarts you spoke about the attitude etc cetera, etc cetera. it wasn't like are they technically uh, skilled enough to do this tell me a little bit about how you sort of looked at and managed the onboarding and, and the the quality of hiring over that period as well what have you looked for in, in that process and how have you tailored your process to make sure you're making the right decisions yeah it, it is it's interesting i'm not sure whether the, remote hiring and zoom interviews is better or worse actually than in person yeah, no, it's because difficult, isn't it? you see different things about people so it is interesting just in terms of, sort of approach and professionalism and those kind of things you know, you'll see people turn up for a zoom interview and i've had this literally slouched on the sofa with a, a 15 year old t-shirt and a, you know a huge star wars mug you know, yeah. <laughs> sitting away for you know for an interview with someone they know nothing about so at best yeah exactly <laughs> so you, yeah, it does tell you different things about people. 
but it's again it's really just about what you look for in the conversations i mean any interview is you know I mean, we've all had those kind of cases where you're five minutes into an interview and you're sort of sitting there going first impressions, no, no, no. And then you talk and expand and drill in a bit more and then you start to understand the person better and you, and you see how, you know, where the qualities really are. Um, so it's just about, you know, not being too too quick, but to make sure that you spend, which makes, makes the whole process more time consuming because you have to spend a bit more time on the hiring and actually understanding people. Certainly on the development teams, you know, with very... Um, technically focused we drill in a lot on technical skills but also mental um, agility and an aptitude mm. um, but in the sort of client facing teams and in uh, product and QA you know, it's, it's, there's a different kind of set of criteria in each case but the the key then is is bringing new people in is onboarding yeah. and that is yeah that that is tricky that takes more time from you know the manager of each group with each new person to ensure that there's a lot more kind of zoom face-to-face -face time um and that people don't feel sort of isolated or lost um, yeah. and we and we always encourage i've got you know there's another sort of saying that we have in turn is uh i summarize as abq always be questioning like mm. encourage people to always ask questions never to feel that they have to sort of go in try and solve something on their own and, and you know get lost down a rabbit hole um yeah. you know and you, you you never know enough about anything even no matter how long you've been doing this i never know enough about my topic so always ask another question just keep drilling down making yeah. sure you understand things and come and ask your your team lead your manager me whoever it is just um ensure that you know you understand something properly for whatever problem you're trying to solve or whatever client challenge you have so it's, it's much about encouraging that attitude but providing the support and having people available and knowing that you can always get someone on zoom or teams um yeah you know whenever you need them yeah, I think I think that's so fundamental, isn't it? That that, that um, there was there was a, a sort of badge of honour I had many years ago, which is uh, it was a client asking, you know, why do you ask so many questions? Uh, and I think that that sort of ability to to do that is is fundamental to you know to the growth and, and of any business. And I think that on, you're absolutely right. That onboarding thing is so tantamount to the success of that, particularly in these companies. There, you know, there's, there's so many companies I've spoken to who've doubled headcount. And when you're doubling headcount, people can get forgotten very, very quickly, with, you know, within an organisation, and and not embedded into the, you know, the true culture. And we've spoken all the, you know, for, for years about how important cultures are in businesses, and to have a culture which is as remote as it has been has been, uh, you know, a challenge for businesses. And, and some people have again got that right, and some people got it very wrong. Alongside culture, one of the other big things that people talk about is vision, vision and mission. And I know, Cassine, you know, from everything you've spoken about so far, you're very clear about your reason for, for being you're very clear about your your vision and the mission for, for cassini tell us a little bit about that and how that's worked for you and the, and the team yeah absolutely i think that is that is also as you say that's key um there's there's a not uncommon thing with tech firms that they kind of start up they they have a solution looking for a problem it doesn't work and then they yeah. pivot and then may, maybe they pivot again and you know they're looking to try and find an application and sort of build some tech and think how can i find a way to make, I, I spoke to someone the other day who I, I won't mention any names, but um, it's, it's a group that have, I think, built something five plus years ago and still being, you know, it's quite a smart piece of tech in its own way, but still trying to find the right application for it. You know, it's, yeah. whereas in our case, as I said, there was a defined vision at the start. There was a defined mission statement, which was to be able to tell a portfolio manager at pre-trade time the full lifetime cost of their trade and 
we do a lot more than just that pre-trade piece, but that um, encapsulated all of the kind of components of tools and analytics and data that we needed to embed in the platform to solve that problem was there's a huge amount you had to build. And then off the back of that, you get all the other kind of uh, components. So we've had a kind of, I hate that cliche, you know, laser-like vision. We've had a very clear sort of focus on that goal that the whole way through. It started off 2014, um, initially self-funded, and then we brought in VC money later to, to scale up and, and go to market. But initially with a, a smaller dev team um, to, to explore and prototype and figure out the solution. Take, as we said, uh, I said before, you know, that we had time to do that because we knew that the sort of the market appetite was going to be a little bit down the road. So we took time to frame and scope and design the platform sort of early on and set the framework out. And then we brought the money in, um, yeah, relocated the team to London, opened up in New York um, and ramped everything up from there. And you know, over the last couple of years, that's been a kind of continuous growth plan. Yeah, yeah. So so the key has been that, that that sort of core solution set has been there from day one. And it's also, as I said, it's, it's a new concept. So the, the core idea really is that we're overlaying um, an analytics backbone that goes from front office, middle office, back office, that actually knows and can understand front office data and back office data and risk data and combine them all in a way that creates value add um, information and analytics to each part of the trade uh, sort of life cycle. So mm. pre-trade analytics, which is that sort of defining mission statement, intraday uh, collateral and risk monitoring, end of day um, and sort of post-trade optimization and end of day um, attribution reporting or um, you know, cash uh, buffer projections, whatever it might be. There's a, there's a range of different kind of um, analytics that come out of that platform that you can plug into wherever your uh, need is in your trade lifecycle. So as I said before, you know, especially in the buy side, they're very often organized in this functionally siloed way and the technology solutions go with that. So in the front office, you've got your OMS and EMS, then you've got your risk and treasury systems and in the back office, you've got collateral and settlement systems, et cetera. Um, and what we designed was a solution that could integrate into all of those and add value into each of their existing workflow processes with this additional sort of enriched understanding of all of their worlds. Mm. Um, and it comes back to that, if you think about it from the business perspective, so there's, you know, there's a kind of system vision, but from the business perspective, the core vision is that post-trade costs, that's margin, collateral and funding, should be as ingrained a part of your trade control process as market risk is or credit risk is. So you should be thinking about it at pre-trade time. You should be monitoring it in the front office. You should be uh, monitoring it, you know, intraday in terms of limits and alerting. And you should have all your sort of end of day and, and post-trade reporting in the same way you do for market risk and, and also for forecasting and projections, how that will change over time. So that, that core vision has really been the bedrock because from that, obviously we, we keep expanding the footprint, we expand the asset classes that we cover. Uh, we're moving into sort of uh, repo and cleared repo now, which is the last piece of sort of cleared well. Um, and then we have we have other areas that come off the back of that as well in terms of uh, sort of liquidity, collateral liquidity management, treasury optimization, mm. um, wallet share analysis. But it's it's that core concept of uh, enhancing your trade control process and building this unified view of post-trade 
into the rest of the processes that that drives everything and you're you're in a very interesting world i think at the moment in in buy side finance and buy side tech because you know for many years i think it's been quite sleepy um in in, in that area we've seen you know, uh, you know and and probably the biggest uh the biggest trend of 2000 to 2015 was the sort of oms buy side wars where you saw the sort of moving of three or four major behemoths uh sort of you know collide at various different stages with who was having the year of the best sales team at that at that sort of stage switching places and i remember maybe six seven years ago um sitting on a panel with a number of buy side ceos um and they hosted a dinner that i was invited to which was which was looking at you know, uh, maybe five six startup technology innovations in the space and you had to search pretty pretty far and wide for those at that yeah. at that sort of stage and I think the last couple of years has really seen an explosion of digital adoption and transformation to an extent with, you know, with it, within it. And the last year in particular, fueled by COVID, has seen a real adoption of, of the buy side picking up, from my opinion. What I'd love to hear from you is, is, is you know, what you see happening in the vision for, for buy side finance, buy side technology, and what, what are some of the trends that we can expect to see coming up? Yeah, I think I'll we'll start with, I definitely agree with and support you know, your premise there in terms of how it's changed over time so when when we were running Syncova so that's 15 13 14 15 years ago now mm. um we really were sort of on our own you know yeah especially in that prime broker and hedge fund world you know, a true small specialist startup was a very sort of unusual beast and we didn't really have a lot of kind of peers or people we could we could work with now it's a very very different world um, and as you said, you know, what we see even just within our sort of buy side capital markets world, you know, there's cloud margins and decos and you, know, you, you can name you know, half a dozen at least. There's a whole bunch of very smart new fintechs, sort of startup or scale ups with a great concept and great piece of technology bringing you know, a, a new solution to the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and also not trying to do everything, focusing on solving their piece of, of the jigsaw um, and yeah. in a way that's also you know, using modern technology and is open and integratable. And I think that's that's one of the key things I see changing going forward. So within our world, for example, one of our key um, strategies from the start has been um, integration. So mm -hmm. if you're bringing sort of value add analytics and optimization to a, to a user as we are, it's very you know, it's very powerful in its own right but it's even more powerful if it's available and embedded in their existing tool set so yeah. we partner with oms's charles river some corp thinkfolio etc um we partner with platform management systems we recently uh partnered up with state street and their outsourcing business yeah. so we're, we're looking to find the right partners to deliver value add solutions to their end clients yeah. and the reason why they partner with us is that, that awareness across the industry of let's not try and build everything. Let's work with subject matter experts in each domain and, you know, couple things up and integrate where it makes sense. It's becoming more of a kind of uh, a standard way of looking at, at the world now, I, I think. So that's the trend I see going forward is, you know, less sort of behemoth platform, more, you know, big kind of central frameworks, Simcorps is the idea of the loadings of the world, but, you know, plugging in and, and integrating with, you know, um, expert solutions in different um, parts of the sort of functional universe. Yeah. 
yeah, that makes complete sense. You get best of breed, you get much more agile, um, innovative solutions in each of those areas. And because you know the modern tech stack is all API driven, it yeah, it decouples dependencies um, and yeah. it makes uh, firms a lot more able to to select the tool set that they need to solve their problems. So yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a trend which is it's been great to see. It's been great to see genuine innovation happening in our industry. Um, yeah. It's an industry that for too long was sort of stale. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I'm still on sort of panels and things like that now where we're discussing data issues that we should have solved 20 years ago. You know, um, so there's still a lot to do. Uh, and there are the other great sort of initiatives that we're starting to see come through are things like data standardization, like the common domain model, um, those kind of things coming through, which will, especially around legal agreements and those more sort of semi-structured data sets, which yeah. have always been a problem um, for people in terms of reconciliation and consistency. So it's I think, I think real those, growth in that area, hasn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. those two initiatives, they've finally got enough sort of critical mass and traction to start moving properly. And I think those will be big changes that we'll see coming in the next five years. I'm sort of nodding and yesing all the way through this because it's because I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there has been so much talk and and, and yeah, this is a consistent theme on this show about collaboration, partnership, and and uh, and the benefits of. I mean, it just seems crazy that it's taken so long to you know, to move away from you know enterprise tech that that is that is basically dictated how you're able to you know to use it as an end user. Yeah. And actually, that's yeah, I love the way you know concentrate on your piece of the jigsaw and provide real value in those sort of areas. There's so many different areas that out there, and putting a stack stack in there that can increase efficiency all the way through through the process, I think has been absolutely yeah, absolutely driven. And that that's been, you know, in no small part caused by what's happened over the last year and the adoption, you know, the rapid adoption of cloud and 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 the final thawing of the last uh, resistance <laughs> to you know to, to to that particular area. Yeah, that, 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 that I can also. Innovation. Yeah. Sorry to yeah, that I can certainly vouch for as well. So, when we started, you know, bringing Cassini to market three years ago, I say, um, we took the view that we would we would not be a pure cloud solution. We would offer the flexibility. So, we have uh, clients who deploy on premises. We have um, partner firms that actually fully embed and integrate their own their own version of Cassini. But we also um, offer it and host it in the cloud for clients. Yeah. And we now have a sort of a, a lighter weight reporting only SaaS solution. So we've got a range of different deployment models. And you've seen it even in the last two years, the, the change in you know, the larger sort of more conservative traditional firms that previously would have demanded on-prem or at least their own single tenant instance um, are now becoming a lot more open to, you know, on-prem is not really in any of our discussions anymore. Mm. That's, you know, now it's all about, okay, well, you host it in the cloud for us. Um, and we're now starting to get more uptake on, okay, well, actually, we'll, we'll happily use a sort of a centralized service as well. So uh, to your point, exactly, there's definitely that sort of shift in acceptance um, yeah. of, of the cloud and of you know, cost efficient, uh, time efficient sort of deployment solutions. Yeah, yeah efficiency, absolutely, the kernel of everything we've seen. Liam, this this is a conversation I, I feel like I could be having for the next three hours and and not even get close to to finishing up. So we're definitely going to re, re, revisit this because the Cassini story is fascinating, but so too is everything you're talking about uh, in between it as well. Let's let's finish um, by talking Cassini and talking about 2021 and and, and beyond. So you've spoken a, a lot about the journey, the reason where you're going, the, the sort of problems you're able to solve at the moment. 
give us a, give us a bit of a snapshot as to what's exciting, uh, what people can expect from Cassini over the course of 2021, and uh, and and tell everyone uh, who should be talking to you right now. Yeah, so 2021. Firstly, the great thing is hopefully we're all going to actually be able to meet up again and yeah. um, you know go meet our clients in person. I mean, we talked about onboarding staff, etc. Earlier, we've signed up a whole raft of clients last year that we have never met. I mean, yeah. that's that's completely alien to me. You know, my entire yeah. career, you know, you're doing business and very closely partnered with people that you've never even met in person. Um, yeah. So it's going to be great to go meet that, meet those people. Actually, you know, be able to do sales process where you get in front of people and you actually get to know them and build a relationship. So that's going to be a great thing going forward. Um, from Cassini itself, as I said, we we have sort of two or three big things we're doing this year. Firstly, uh, we're re um, releasing a new UI. So we've basically, you know, it's one of the great things about being a agile company. You can you can learn and adapt and shift quickly. So we have a user interface for the platform that we built, you know, started building three or four years ago. And as you get clients using it, as you get more and more feedback, you, know, you can take that on board. So we basically redesigned the user journey from the bottom up and built a whole brand new user experience. So we're rolling that out, yeah. um, which is gonna be great. I and mean, we're looking forward to, you know, clients are all demanding it you know, tomorrow. Um, there's a lot of excitement about that. We are also sort of bringing out some uh, slightly more sort of focused solutions for different parts of our market. So one of the things about um, what we do is we focus on uh, we, well, we, we address the entire buy side, but that's a very big universe. You know, we have trillion dollar asset managers, we have a billion dollar hedge funds as clients, sovereign wealth funds and everything in between. So there are different sort of um, solutions or different packages that firms in the small to medium end of that market um, want in terms of you know, more canned, standardized reporting and analytics. So we're, we're rolling some new packages out for those firms. So specifically targeted at the hedge fund market and what is also in the in the parlance known as the phase six firms so those are asset managers that are in phase six of the umr regulations so they have all of this new regulatory compliance obligation but their requirements are lighter weight monitoring oriented so we have some packages coming through for those guys um, as i said we're also adding repo clearing into our universe um, and that's all really first half. <laughs> that's that's in the next uh, three or four months. In the second half of the year, we then have some of our more strategic uh, product expansion that we're bringing through. So more um, stress testing um, tools around collateral liquidity management and also uh, what we call sort of treasury optimization. And that's really, that's that's a very powerful longer term goal of ours where Treasury optimization to us is looking at your overall inventory holistically, not just managing the cost and the obligation side of it, which is margin and collateral, but looking at the, the revenue generation side of it. So where can I repo? Where can I use sec lending short term? And a, a holistic optimization solution around that. So that's that's a piece we're starting to push a lot more on in the second half. And we also will be bringing through some uh, additional wallet share and re um, reporting tools for hedge funds. So there's quite a lot of different uh, extensions that we have on, on plan, um, a very busy roadmap for the year. And also, I so said, continuing to expand, we're expanding our Asia presence. Um, we're expanding our team in New York, building, building that up a lot more. Um, once you know, COVID restrictions are now out of the way, we can really uh, drive that forward. So a lot to do. Quite, yeah. 
<laughs> it's if if uh, if 2020 was an exciting one for you, 2021 sounds even 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 better. So, yeah. Liam, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've been sat here with a sort of smile across my face for almost all of what you're saying because it's it's an area that I absolutely love. I've always loved that that sort of buy side tech space, and and uh, you know I've got a long track record in in that sort of area of, of seeing companies grow at, at pace. And I know when you get it right, it can absolutely change the world a little bit within that. And uh, your story is fantastic. It's been great to to hear it. Um, it's flown literally through this this whole conversation. So as I say, I, I could be having it for a lot, lot longer. So I, I really appreciate you coming on board, being so so uh, honest with everything you've been through so far this year um, to, to introduce the company. It's been great talking to you and thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Toby. It's been, been a fun chat. And as you say, it's uh, when you're talking about things you're really invested in, enjoy doing it, time, time goes. So could happily carry on for another hour. But <laughs> that, that, thanks, for, thanks for your time. Thanks for inviting us. No problem at all. Thank you all for watching, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming uh, for, for uh, tuning in, and we'll see you soon on another episode of FinTech Focus TV. Thanks a lot. Cheers.